0: Good morning, church. Grace and peace to all of you. Genesis chapter 3. I love the songs that we sing at church. I love the fact that we sing older songs. But sometimes when we sing older songs, we sing words. We just sing them. But we don't even know what they mean. So, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. I looked it up. Interpose. It's a verb. To place or insert between one thing and another. To intervene between parties. We sinned and had fallen short of the glory of God and were were subject to our creator and his wrath. But Jesus stepped between, took the wrath that we deserve, and interposed his precious blood so that we could be freed and forgiven. <laughs> interposed is a good word, right? Interposed. That's your little vocab lesson for the day. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. This is part two of a message that I began last week titled Paradise Lost, the Painful Effects of the Fall, part two. Genesis chapter three, verses seven and eight. So this is after Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit and their rebellion against God in the garden. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, educate us, warm our hearts, inspire us, mold our wills, transform us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last week we started, this is part one, I spoke about three ever-present painful feelings that are the effect of the fall. And if you were here last week, you remember I covered two. Does anybody remember what they are? You're cheating. No, they're not up there yet? Okay. Three ever-present painful feelings that are the effects of the fall. Does anybody remember what one of them was? Guilt. Guilt. Good. You're listening. Guilt is one of the ever-present painful effects of the fall. What was the other one I mentioned? Fear. fear. So fear. Today, we're going to cover the third. We'll spend all of the sermon on this third one. And it is shame. That's what we're talking about. Shame defined a painful or unpleasant feeling of humiliation caused by awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. I'll read it again. Painful, shame is a painful or unpleasant feeling of humiliation caused by the awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. It was around this time of year, beginning of the school year, fifth, sixth grade. So rewind a little bit for me. On that particular day, in fifth or sixth grade, uh, the, the voice came over from the office on the intercom. Mrs. Paxton, yes, send all the 6th grade boys down to the nurse's office. So, it's a way to get out of class. Are you kidding? 6th grade boys down to the nurse's office. All the boys that were in the class. So we go down to the nurse's office, and Mrs. Desmond, I can still see her face perfectly. Mrs. Desmond was a nurse, and she gave us our instruction. We were all kind of lined up, and she said, okay, um, boys, this is, the, the, the doctor comes and does just like a brief physical for all of you. This is, they must have done this kind of stuff in schools. But they lined us up, and they were going to give us just a, a, not a long physical, just a brief physical. So she said, strip down into everything but your undies. So everybody did. You picture a bunch of 6th grade boys standing there in their tidy whities <laughs> However, yours truly had a problem. On that particular day, my mom must not have been too caught up on the wash. And some of you feeling my pain. You know where this is heading. And so I didn't have any clean underwear. So I decided I made a command decision, me and me, I'm just going to go without underwear today. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so when I went to undo my pants, I realized I had a problem. So I did I'm just fast thinking, Jedi mind action. I did what probably all of you would do. I stood in that line with the boys, but I stood there with my pants on. Oh. What's going on, Lynch? She said, strip down. I feel it. Do you feel it? Mrs. Desmond came back into the room. Strip down to your underwear, Mrs. Devon, A word. (laughs) I can't strip down. I don't have any underwear. No problem, she said. Come on back here. Nurses in elementary school keep underwear in a box. Yeah. I don't know whose they were, but she gave me a pair of underwear and I put them on and I went out and I got my physical. Shame, a painful or unpleasant feeling of humiliation caused by an awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. Have I sufficiently illustrated shame? (laughs) To be human is to be infected by this phenomena called shame. The story I shared is an obvious example of shame. Some of you probably have your own. I don't know if it's as good as that one. I got a lot of them, unfortunately. Many of us carry shame less publicly. May be able even to keep it from other people. Even the people that know you best. Unemployment. A job that seems below you. A family member whose addiction is on full display. Losing a major account at work. Marriage troubles. Even divorce. A rebellious child. An unfavorable comparison to other members of your team. A feeling... That everyone on Instagram seems more amazing than you. A feeling that you just don't measure up. These are just some examples of how shame can lurk in the deepest nooks and crannies of who you are. Some of you may have just a faint awareness of shame. Others among you may wrestle with it frequently, feelings of, of shame. You look at your life, and there's a lot of different areas where you feel like, I'm, I'm, I feel that, I wrestle with that. Others of you may be tormented by it, and you would exterminate it from your life if you could. But its presence and its activity in our lives is undeniable. It shows up in the bedroom and the boardroom. It shows up in the classroom, in the kitchen. It shows up on the athletic field and at the office. It shows up on the playground and the prayer group. Shame. We all know it. We all feel it. And shame joins guilt and fear in this, I call it this trifecta monster guilt, shame, and fear. Shame joins guilt and fear, these painful feelings that are the effects of the fall, this trifecta monster that kills our communion with God, it kills our fellowship. Our ability to be intimate and open with one another, it kills our flourishing, the flourishing that we were designed for, and using our gifts to create places and spaces of beauty and joy, shame, guilt, and fear, the effects of our rebellion and our sin against God. This is what it's doing. This is its effect, And it's so pervasive, it's it's infected every area of who, every area of our lives, every nook and cranny of who we are. And even when we're not acutely aware of its presence, it's hanging around. It's like a, a cloud that sits on your shoulder, or hangs above your head. That's why in describing the painful effects of the fall, I didn't just use the adjective painful, I used the adjective ever-present, three ever-present painful effects. What I'm trying to get at there is even though you might not be acutely aware of any shame in your life right now, you are aware of it's hanging around. Who's with me? Is anybody with me? You know this. It's ever present. It won't go away. It's like a neighbor who stops by and won't leave. <laughs> so, what do we want to do? What do we want to do with things that are unpleasant? What do we want to do with things that are painful and ever present? We want to get rid of them. We talked about guilt. How do we get rid of guilt? Deny it, blame shift, do better. How do we get rid of our fear, usually? Common method, run away from it. How do we get rid of our shame? And it's so clearly presented right here in this passage. What's the common method we use to get rid of shameful feelings? We hide. We cover it up. We hide it. Look at what we see in the scripture. Adam and Eve have listened to the serpent, they've rebelled against God, their eyes are open, just like the serpent said they would be, and they feel what? They knew, they don't just feel, they knew that they were naked and ashamed. 2.25 225 says that they were naked at the end of chapter 2 and unashamed. But now, after sin has entered their hearts and they've rebelled against God and they're feeling the painful effects of the fall, their eyes are open, they feel naked, they feel ashamed. What do they do? They can't stand this feeling of being exposed. What do they do? They make coverings out of fig leaves to what? To hide they shame. Then in verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. What do they do? They can't stand this feeling of being exposed by God, of being naked before God. They didn't feel this way before. But now, painful effect of the fall, they feel this way. And what does the Scripture say they did? And the man and his wife hid themselves from God in the trees that God had created in the garden. They're hiding. That's the default method for for trying to rid ourselves of shame feelings. We hide. A little aside. it appears that their attempts at clothing design were focused on their private areas. The acute sense of their nakedness, which was more than physical, spiritual. But the result of this feeling made making, covering those areas the highest priority. So it appears from the scripture. The, the, the scripture says they made loin claws for themselves, literally translated belts. So we know it was this area of their body they were covering. Now, I'm not sure of what exegetical proof we have for this statement, but I think... And I believe it's, this is true experientially. But I think there's a link here between shame, as I've described it, and sexuality and sex. I'm not saying their first sin was sexual. I'm not saying that. Their quickly fashioned loincloths were an attempt to hide from who? God. But not only God. An attempt to hide from one another. So the painful effects of the fall have certainly affected our vertical relationship with God, but shame has affected our horizontal relationships with one another. Shame impacts deeply all relationships. And the sexual shame that we can feel, part of it, part of it, is linked to actual sin. To actual sexual sin. Which is present all over this room. And we feel shame for it. But part of the shame that we feel is linked to a corrupted view of sexuality. Where did that happen? In our rebellion. At the fall. And I think Satan and sin have wreaked destruction in the area of sex that has wrought Incredible shame upon us all and has really damaged our ability to relate to God and to one another. A distorted, corrupted view of sex, but that church was never God's intent. That was never. God's intent. It's not like sex was some weird thing even before the fall. It was good. God said it was good. In the end of chapter two, the man and woman were naked and not ashamed. There was beauty, there was joy, there was intimacy, there was closeness, and all of it we're told was good because that was God's plan. That was God's design. But sin and the effects of sin have corrupted our understanding of God's good design. There are many couples sitting in this room right now whose relationships are deeply impacted by a shame that you feel that is born out of a corrupted view of sexuality. So what do we do? I don't say this to be trite because I don't have all the answers, but I know the answer includes Jesus. I know it. I know, I know that the Bible points to, to, to the problem of sin and the solution being Jesus. And so in, in, in talking about how sin has corrupted our understanding of sex and sexuality. I want to, and you're dealing with shame, I want to point you to Jesus. I want to point you to our Savior. Because of the gospel, because of the grace of God, the grace of God is able to reverse the harmful effects of sin in our lives. Do you believe that, church? Have you experienced that? If you've experienced it in some areas of your life, what I want you to know is that shame that gets down into the deep nooks and crannies of our lives, guess what? The grace of the gospel gets there too. It gets into the deepest nooks and crannies of our hearts and our lives, and it does its transforming work. What we want to be able to say to God is, Do your work in me, Lord. Do your work in me, Lord. Take your spirit and uh, spirit of God, take the truth of God's word and plant it so deeply in my heart that it touches every area of who I am, including these feelings of shame that I can't seem to exterminate. So we want to move, church. We want to move towards having real discussions with one another, about real issues and about real shame because we're looking to a real Savior. Amen? Amen. That's gospel culture. That's what we're trying to build around here. We're not just playing church. We're not just coming and talking about the safe things. Like, we can talk about what's really going on in our lives because we believe Jesus to be a real Savior. And the gospel wants to get work done in the deepest places of who you are. Church, do you believe me? That's what we're trying to build here. We're not there yet. But sin and shame will not have the last word for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let's look to him now. Amen? Excursus over back to the matter at hand. How do we try to hide our shame? how do we try to hide it? You agree with me that we, that you were not, a lot of you were nodding yes, that yes, yeah, shame. I feel shame. How do I get the common method for getting rid of it is to hide it? Well, how do we hide it? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes about our need. He's writing in this case about our need to actually see sin as sin, something that we don't like to do. To see sin as to come to a realization of how bad we really are in the sight of a holy God and a creator. Now, these are things we don't like to do. They make us uncomfortable. It's so painful and it's so hard to do that, that we try to conceal the facts, try to hide the facts from ourselves and from one another. And he points out ways in which we try to hide our shame. I'm changing the language a little bit, but I've taken these from his book, The Problem of Pain. How do we try to hide our shame? I'm just going to give you four uh, ways, and we'll move briefly through them. How do we try to hide shame? See if you don't resonate with some of these. We look on the outside of things rather than on the inside. We look on the outside of things rather than on the inside. Adam and Eve, they tried to deal with the problem externally, the outside of things. Get some clothing on. What Lewis is focusing on is our, is our, is our uh, tendency to compare ourselves externally to other people. And typically when we do that, we keep looking for someone that we feel like we're better than. And then that makes us feel good. That's, a, that's how we hide. We, we look for other people. You might look at people and say, oh, I'm not as good as them, not as good as them, I'm not as good as them. Please, let me find somebody that's worse than me. Oh, there they are. <laughs> and I feel better about myself. I look on the outside of things. We look at others and say, I might be bad, but I ain't that bad. I might be bad, but I'm just not as bad as that guy. We use external and superficial comparison of ourselves to others to make ourselves feel better in an effort to cover up what we really are. Right? Second thing we do to hide. We focus on how bad the world is rather than our own personal contribution. I mean, look around. Read, the news, read the, your, your, your newspaper. Turn on the TV. World going to hell in a handbasket, right? Isn't that what they say? That's what my dad would say. But we focus on how bad the world is. And then that lets us off a little bit. Now, there is such a thing as corporate guilt, as social guilt, as institutional guilt. There is such a thing as that. That's not what I'm talking about here, and that's not the intent of this message. What I'm talking about is trying to hide our own individual corruption by focusing on how corrupt society is, or how corrupt that political party is, or, or uh, how corrupt the, the whole place is. Listen, institutional guilt is a real thing because it's a pro- projection of what we really are. We try to make ourselves feel better by talking, by talking about how bad they are. I hear this all the time. We do it all the time. We, we, we talk about how bad they are but somehow we never include ourselves in the day. It's a form of hiding. It makes us feel better, but it doesn't deal with anything. Okay, what's the third thing? How do we try to hide our shame? We look on the outside of things rather than the inside. We focus on how bad the world is rather than our own personal contribution. Number three, we assume that time cancels sin. You see this in the way we talk about sins of our youth, the good old days. (laughs) Sins of the distant past. We think somehow because those wrongs were so long ago that somehow they've been forgotten. We act like there's no present concern. Sometimes we even joke about it. God laughing? Is God unconcerned? We are so good at this, and I think it's actually a grace to us, but our memories are so selective. <laughs> we have highly selective memories. And we remember the wrong itself, but we forget the hurt that it caused other people. Church, time does not eradicate sin. The only thing that eradicates sin, the only thing that erases sin, is the blood of Jesus. How do we try to hide? Number four, we think there's safety in numbers. You know how this works. It's based on a really simple but totally illogical conclusion that if everyone fails the test, then the test must have somehow been too hard. (laughs) If all people are as bad as Christianity says, then their badness must be excusable. Now, it's possible for a test to be too hard, that's possible. But not in the case when we're talking about God. God doesn't grade on the curve. And you cannot hide thinking there's safety in numbers. So where does that leave us? Well, our common method, hiding, will prove ineffective. It won't work. So then you should ask, well, what will work? What would work? I want to get rid of this. I've been trying to hide it. Our inability to hide from God has been exposed. The puny fig leaf project shows that Adam and Eve's efforts to hide their shame are as puny as their efforts to hide from God. You can't hide from God. I've been telling you through these last two sermons that there's some purpose here, that God God has purpose in allowing us to experience the painful effects of the fall. Don't forget this point. This isn't just a a, a lecture on shame and how it functions and how we try to get rid of it. This is a sermon on on, on understanding shame and allowing yourself to feel it and to recognize its painful effects, to see how you've made futile, empty efforts, puny efforts to try to hide so that, here's the, this is the point of the sermon, so that it will push you to a real solution, so that it will push you to a real savior. So I'm saying that this shame, this ever-present painful effect of shame has a purpose, and its purpose is to push you to Jesus. So if you're feeling shame, if you're freshly aware of shame and the way it's, got its, the way it's at work in your life, then, then here's the good news. It's going to push you. It's, it's intended to push you towards a solution to Jesus. God is always, he's always up to something good. He's always got redemption on his heart. He's always got redemptive purposes working in your life. And the purpose of this is to push you to him. The purpose is to show us that our natural inclination to hide from God will actually prove ineffective. The purpose is to show us that our natural inclination to hide from one another will prove ineffective. We can't hide from God. Friends, we keep trying, but it will prove ineffective. First Peter 2, verse 6. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to, say it, shame. shame. You want to get rid of your shame? Believe in Jesus and you won't be put to shame. And Peter goes on to say that you'll actually get something in its place. Do you know what? People who are trying to get rid of shame actually want something else. Do you know what you want? You want honor. And God says, Peter says in in God's holy word, so the honor is for those who believe. So if you believe in Jesus, you get rid of your shame, And you get honor. That's good news. He takes all of our blame, embraces all of our shame so that we're free. Church, that's good news. We don't have to hide from God anymore. We can actually hide in God. I want our understanding and our exploration of shame and its harmful effects to push us to Jesus. I'm trying to get you to feel shame so that you'll run to Jesus, to push you to him, to push you to risk it all on a God who would rather die than have something come between us. They yeah, have the band return. We're getting close to the end. Sometimes when you say I have the band return, you think I'm like one minute away. I'm not one minute away. But we're getting close. There's a song I really like written by a singer named Rhett Walker. He has a song called When Mercy Found Me. And in the song... He's reflecting on who he was before the saving grace of Jesus rescued him. He talks about how he was living his life so wild and so free. But the result of that, the effect of that was feeling broken. He actually felt like a broken man and he felt hopeless. But then he writes that it was in that place where Jesus found him, where he was broken and he was hopeless. He writes, and in one, this is a chorus, he says, and in one moment, everything changed. Who I was got washed away when mercy found me. My Savior's arms were open wide and I felt love. For the very first time, when mercy found me. You know what it feels like to have mercy find you? I need God to continue to find me. I need him to continue to come to me in the way that the Bible describes it taking flesh, taking the form of a servant, calling us brother and sister, knowing and embracing the pain and the suffering and the rejection and even death to save us reaching out and coming down the street where I live in order to touch me with his grace and his mercy and his love. I grew up in the suburbs. It was still countryish though still pockets of rural I grew up in Garnet Valley before it was all built up and my brother Jerry and me and our neighbors would play games together we didn't have Fortnite we didn't have Call of Duty we didn't have iPhones and We didn't have Netflix. We had (laughs) hide-and-seek. You can play it for free. (laughs) And so you can know how hide-and-seek goes. One person is it. Everybody else hides. And it, in our case, went up to a tree And hid their eyes. At least they were supposed to. And counted to 100. At least they were supposed to. And then when it got to 100, they shouted out. The way we played it in my neighborhood was, ready or not, here I come. And then it would go looking for everybody that was hidden. And the rules around our way were the first person that got found in the game became it in the next game. And we also played this way, that once you got found, you joined it and the others until the last person was found. And the part of the game that I liked the most was finding a hiding place where no one could find me. And I'm telling you guys, I was something of a celebrity hide-and-seek player in my crew. Because I was good at hiding. To be good at hiding, you have to be willing to go to dark, deep, even dank places. And you've got to be willing to wait it out. You've got to be willing to wait it out. And so on this particular day, I found a great hiding spot back in an old abandoned shed, dark, crawled in behind. Like it was just a bunch of rubbish in there, a bunch of junk. And I crawled in behind it. And and Bart was it. And I heard him shout, ready or not, here I come. And then I could hear him running through the woods, running through the garden, running through the garage running through the the old tool sheds. And I could hear them all being found. And I remember feeling so proud. And I sat there thinking, they'll never find me in here. They will never find me in here. And then it occurred to me, They'll never find me in here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started making noises. Woo, 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 woo. Still can't find me. And then when some of them came into the shed, stuck my foot out. And then, of course, there he is. There he is. We found him. There's Kenny. And I'd walk out of that hiding spot. Yeah, you did. You found me. Darn it. You found me. What did I want? What did I really, really want? The very same thing as you.